Grab a seat, church. Well, we're going to take three weeks to unpack all that. Uh, I had Mark read the whole thing because it's important that we understand that it's all part of one section. So hoping that you guys have kind of a sense now for the whole of the scene as we'll see. Uh, You don't need to go there. I just want to open with this. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul reminds the church at Ephesus, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Listen. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Evil, evil is a franchise. It's a franchise and all those who do not love or serve Jesus belong to that franchise. Uh, evil takes on many forms. Romans, or pardon me, in Ephesians just now, we, we saw that evil is in principalities and in powers, Governmental authorities, structures, uh, all of this is, is different strata, different levels of the complexity of the reality of evil. It's something that we don't like to talk about that much. We don't often talk about that much because it seems sort of unencouraging. But the Bible talks about evil a lot. It talks about evil a lot. And evil takes on, as I said, many forms uh, in many ways all throughout uh, the scripture. There's a, a analogy of this that I, I, I thought of the other day as I was watching the, I guess it's the ninth Star Wars movie. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the new trilogy that came out recently uh, with Ray, you know, has anyone seen those movies? Three people have, that's super helpful. Um, <laughs> there's this scene, okay, some of you guys are older though, do you remember the 1970s movies, right? And, and, and the, the bad guy was Emperor Palpatine, right? He was sort of the, the lord behind Darth Vader, right? Well, guess what? Spoiler alert. Guess what they do in the, the ninth movie? They bring back the ultimate bad guy, right? They bring back Emperor Palpatine. And here's what he tells Rey. Rey's the, the lead character. He tells Rey that all of this time, all of the bad guys, he doesn't use that word, but all of the, the evil actors, they were all really me, he says, He says, I was behind all of them. They were all doing my bidding. What is that portraying? It's portraying that in this evil empire, that this one man, Palpatine, was essentially the head of the snake. That all the other bad guys lined up behind and lined up underneath the one bad guy is kind of the idea. This is important, and it's really being encapsulated in our text this morning. Okay, there's a head to every snake and there's a body to every snake and the body of the snake of evil has many parts. Okay, it has many parts. Don't oversimplify it. It's incredibly complex and incredibly terrifying. Evil takes on many forms. It has many iterations and many manifestations. Yet it is all part of one singular essence. And for the body of evil in the world to die... The head must be crushed. We learn that in the very beginning of the Bible, don't we? When evil finds its way into the creation. In the second scene of Genesis, right? The second scene of redemptive history, when Adam and Eve are tempted uh, through lies by the enemy and evil finds its way into this perfect uh, creation, uh, what happens? Okay, what happens is a snake comes into the garden. And the promise, what's called the Proto-Euangelion, the first promise of the good news, comes and says that, the, that there will come one who will crush, not the body of the snake, but what? The head of the snake. Most of the, the, the war that has been made on, on evil throughout the world, I think about Nazi Germany, 
or, or, or many of the, the different sort of things that, that have, have, have evil that have cropped up in the world, right? Most of those are simply proxy wars. They're skirmishes. And we could fight that all we want. You ever, you ever pull a tail off a lizard? When you're a kid, you ever try to catch lizards and you pull the tail off? It grows back, right? It's actually like a defense mechanism. Like, yeah, take my tail, sure, whatever, right? You want to kill the snake, you crush its head. The promise of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that even though evil has penetrated this world and this dimension and this created reality, even though the evil has penetrated it and permeated it and is dominating it, that the head of the snake will be crushed and it will be crushed by the seed of Eve. A man will come into this world and he will crush the head of the snake. Now, crushing the head of the snake means more than just putting the devil to death. No, the, the, the problems in the world are much more complex than just the devil. Crushing the head of the snake means death needs to die. It means sin needs to be forgiven. It means regeneration needs to happen, which means we all need to be born again. It means we need a whole new created reality. This world needs to be renovated. It needs to be stripped back to the studs in order for the head of the snake to be cut off. And guys, all of those realities happen in the gospel. And all of those realities are depicted in chapter seven of Daniel. It's really the gospel all compressed into one. What is evil, by the way? Let's stop and think about that for just a second. What is evil? I would say evil is anything or anyone that is placed outside the rule of God. Our Western world has, tr has tricked us into thinking that, that evil is only if you do certain levels of bad. But in reality, evil is the space where God's kingdom is not in charge. Okay? And sin flows out of evil. Sin flows out of evil. See, think about this, and I don't want to go too far into this because it's a philosophical journey, but think about this. Evil existed before the garden, didn't it? It entered into the garden and it entered through the vehicle that it always enters in, which is lies and deception, preying on unbelief. And out of evil came sin. See, sin flows out of evil. So for sin to die, evil must die as well. Evil did not preside with the enemy. Evil is the absence of God's nature. Evil is the result of rebellion against God's nature and God's rule. So that's why in the Bible, the good news is not just that evil dies, it's that God's space completely takes over our space. Jesus says, may it be on earth as it is in heaven, meaning may your rule be fully realized, fully manifested on this earth. In other words, all evil needs to go. There needs to be no space where God's rule is not completely manifested. That's what it means to get rid of of evil. So what, Sam? So we need to wake up, and this is going to be kind of my call this morning, is to wake up and see the intricacy and the unity and the longevity and the reality of evil so that we can see evil for what it is, as it is, and where it is. Otherwise, we will avoid it, be ignorant to it, or even join in with it. We need to talk about evil in the church. Not always the most encouraging subject, okay? Probably not something Osteen's gonna write a book on this year, right? But the Bible brings it up a lot. And it's really important. And the gospel's only good news if you understand how the gospel crushes the head of the snake. And how all of that really finds its full consummation in the person and the arrival of Jesus Christ, amen? So uh, if we can see evil for what it is, then I think we can rightly react to it. And I think one of the problems in the Western church in particular is that we don't see what, really evil, we don't see what evil really is. So we absorb and adopt and, and allow a lot of it in our lives to the detriment of the bride of Christ. You're gonna laugh at me for this illustration, but there's a scene in The Little Mermaid uh, <laughs> The new one, there's the new one. There's a scene in The Little Mermaid where, where Ursula, you know, takes on a human form and she's, you know, this gnarly, scary sea monster, right? Uh, and she, she takes human form and of course she, she comes in like this young, beautiful woman and she takes the voice of the lead character and so the prince just thinks that she's great. But there's this one really creative scene where the camera shows the woman but then it shows her shadow and her shadow is the sea monster, Right? And so for a minute you go, oh, okay, someone's getting over there. <laughs> little Mermaid, okay, great. I literally put that in my notes. I was like, should I use a Little Mermaid illustration? Like, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, so, so the shadow is the sea monster. Now here's exactly what's happening in Revela er, Revelation, in Daniel chapter seven. 
Okay, what we're seeing in the moment is we're seeing the, the curtain of this dimension peeled back for a moment. And we're seeing evil's true face. And we're seeing the world and its fallen and broken system revealed in its true face and it's hideous. It's a monster. In fact, it's multiple monsters. And the deadly thing about evil, right, is that a lot of the things that we don't think are evil actually are. I guarantee that some of the most evil people in the world go to sleep at night not feeling even an ounce of conviction. Because this is how uh, there's a synergistic relationship between lies and evil. Our conscience is seared. We can, we can do evil and believe it's good. In fact, that's where Satan really gets us. He convinces us that good is evil and evil is good. Just look at abortion in our culture, right? It's held up as a good thing. It's murder, right? And, and so, so when, when that gets twisted, everything starts to unravel. Okay, what if we could see behind the curtain for just a minute of the physical dimension? Okay, what if, uh, what if just for a minute I handed you a pair of glasses and I said, hey, you're gonna see all of the unseen, reality around you, principalities and powers, what would you see? I think it would, I think it would absolutely terrify you. <laughs> I think it would absolutely terrify you. You would be blown away, okay? There is a spiritual dimension. Do you understand that? And it sounds like crazy making if you don't go to church, but, but in reality, there is a spiritual dimension. Everybody knows it. There are things that we don't see. There are realities that we don't see. And, and what Daniel's gonna do is it's just gonna give us for just a second clarity into the things that we don't always see. We, we are entering this morning, from this point forward, for the next 12 weeks, we are entering what is called apocalyptic literature. Can you guys say apocalyptic literature? Just making sure you're awake. That was very disjointed. Okay. Uh, apocalyptic literature. Now, apocalyptic literature... Uh, sounds pretty intense, and it, and it is, okay? But I want to just take a minute, before we get into the text, I want to give you, this is where your handout comes in, if you, if you got one, a little bit of information about the kind of material we're about to wade into. And I'm going to try to front load this so that over the next three weeks, chapter seven will make more sense. So spend a little bit of time giving you introduction to chapter seven. So first, let's talk about apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which you can write this down in your handout, which means unveiling or revelation, okay? Why is revelation so uh, tied to the idea of apocalypse? Well, if you go to Revelation chapter one, which you don't need to, I'll do it for you. Uh, it literally says the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the first sentence, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. The unveiling of whom? Jesus Christ. See, the book of Revelation isn't about the Antichrist. Did you know that? Neither is Daniel. It's about Jesus Christ. Apocalyptic literature is pulling back a curtain. It's peeling back the layers of this physical dimension for a moment so that we might see other books in the Bible that are apocalyptic, uh, parts of Ezekiel, the book of Zechariah, and famously, of course, Daniel, and the book of Revelation. It's a very unique particular type of biblical literature. Apocalyptic literature peels back the curtain into the unseen realm and often the soon-to-be future. So most of it, much of it, is prophetic in, in a future-telling sense. The genre of apocalyptic is terrifying and bizarre, okay? Horns with mouths and eyes, as we've seen. Crazy, right? It's terrifying and bizarre. Why is it so strange? You can write this down. There's two reasons. Number one, we do not have an appropriate interface between dimensional realities, does everyone understand what I mean by that? Daniel, John, Zechariah, they get pulled into these visions of spiritual realities. They don't have the right, uh, the right equipment to be able to, you know, it's like internet, it's like ones and zeros, right? TV's ones and zeros, you send it and you receive it on the other end. When you're outside your dimensional depth, what you're seeing doesn't make a lot of sense. So that's why, partly why apocalyptic literature can be kind of bizarre. The other is that each of these things that we're gonna see have deep, significance and symbology. And you really need to understand the whole of scripture to, to be able to pick some of them out. We can go too far with that as, as I'll so, say in a minute. But So at first read, what we're gonna see today may seem strange and that's because it is. Okay, it is strange. It is meant, listen to me, it is meant to evoke a visceral reaction within us. How does Daniel react to chapter seven? Look at verse 15. Daniel was not, uh, he was not a young man when this happened. He was older. 
he uh, had seen a lot, done a lot, been exposed to some pretty crazy things. And here's how Daniel feels after he takes in the vision that we're about to study. Daniel 7:15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. Skip over to verse 28. Again, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So what is the reaction Daniel has to this vision? He's terrified. Now, he sees that the Ancient of Days is victorious and that the Son of Man is glorious, but yet he's still terrified. So here's my conviction. My conviction is that my job this morning as an expositor, one who's going to expose the meaning of the scripture to you, is to make you a little terrified. I think we should feel kind of like Daniel does. I think we should look at this and go, whoa, that's really scary. That's really intense. So first of all, Daniel was terrified. The second thing is he was also curious. You notice that? He asks probably the angel, what's going on? And so I think the second reaction we should have to this text is it should make us curious. Okay, we shouldn't just read it and go, that's weird. Let me go back to Psalms or something. Uh, let me just stay in Mark. This is too great for me. No, I think we should open Daniel 7. We should go, hmm, let's spend some time figuring out what this stuff means. Number three, Daniel was meditative. It says that he kept the matter in his heart. In other words, he put it in the space of his chest where it will have the greatest impact on his faith. He chewed on it. So we're gonna take those three postures as we examine uh, all, really all the second half of Daniel, but particularly chapter seven here. By the way, this material is meant to really be pictured and felt more than it is dissected. And this is where we can kind of go wrong. This is why I had Mark come up and read the whole thing. Because a lot of times we, we dive so into the weeds of this stuff and we start trying to figure out who the Antichrist is and, and who the bear is and who the blah, blah, blah. And we get so, and why does he have three ribs in his mouth? And why not two ribs in his mouth? And why is he standing up on one foot? And is it the left foot or the right foot? And why does the leopard have four heads instead of five heads? And maybe the four heads have four, uh, you know, uh, six, well, four heads pl uh, plus two ears. That's, that's eight ears and then eight ears times four wings, you know, you start doing that kind of stuff with a newspaper in your hand, you're going to be a screwball. No one's going to want to hang out with you and stay off YouTube. Okay. That's my spiel. So, so the, this stuff is meant to be pictured, it's meant to be felt, and it's meant to be taken as a whole, and we ought not to lose the context of it. So over the next three weeks as we dive into this chapter, I'm going to attempt to keep us out of the weeds and keep us on the big picture. And the central feature of this chapter is not the beast, who we're going to talk about this morning. The central feature of this chapter is the Son of Man in the Ancient of Days. We'll talk about who those are in a minute. So as I said, we're going to look at one through eight today. Uh, before we dive in, let me overview the chapter, okay? Uh, let me talk about chapter seven as a whole. Uh, note five things about chapter seven, and then we'll, di we'll dive into the text. And these are in your handout if you want to write them in. Actually, I, I put them in there for you. Saved you time. Number one, chapter, Daniel chapter seven, it, com it compresses the entire story of humanity into one scene. It really does. It compresses the entire story of humanity into one scene. It is probably one of the most important, I texted this out to you guys this week, probably one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. Who, who could tell me why? Anyone take a stab at that? Jesus called himself something. What was it? Where does Son of Man come out of? It's his favorite name, Daniel chapter 7. So, the reality is Jesus was trying to hyperlink his disciples' attention based on his identity and the nature of his ministry to this material right here. You understand that? He was trying to get his disciples to go, whoever this Jesus is, Daniel chapter seven is an incredibly important key to that. So that's why this is such an important text. It's also important because, as I said, it's the whole of redemptive history, the whole of human history compressed into one little zip file. Uh, Number, the second thing about chapter seven I want you to note is that it is an intensely debated chapter. Okay, if you start reading commentaries, you'll find all kinds of views on different things, and it's an intensely debated chapter. Uh, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, we will try as much as possible to avoid the extemporaneous 
and point out the obvious, okay? I'm gonna try to avoid the rabbit trails. I think there's two ditches you can drive into when it comes to this kind of Bible. One is to under-exegete and the other is to over-exegete. Under-exegete means, eh, we can't really figure it out, so you get the big idea. Jesus wins, let's go do something else, right? Let's not do that. There's details here, let's talk about them. The other ditch is, as, as I already said, you start picking apart every little thing too much. Okay, the main thing is the plain thing, and that is, listen, I'll give you the whole book of, I'll give you the whole Bible in one sentence. God wins, and he does it through Jesus. Okay, that's the gospel. That's Daniel chapter seven. That's Daniel, that's Revelation. That's the whole Bible. God wins, and he does it through Jesus. God rescues his creation, and he does so through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the whole thing. As long as we all agree on that, we can talk and argue about who the Antichrist is. I know who he is, don't you guys? I mean, I gotta figure it out, right? I, I, I'll put him up in a moment, uh, on a slide. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just joking. Okay. Okay, number three. Uh, this chapter has eight characters in it. You ready? There's eight key characters in Daniel chapter seven we're gonna be looking at for the next three weeks. First, there's four beasts. One, two, three, four. We'll look at those in a minute. Then there is someone called the Ancient of Days. Then... Number six, there's the son of man. There is a little horn. And there are the saints. These are the characters. Four beasts, ancient of days, son of man, little horn, saints. Number four, chapter seven has six basic things happening or six basic happenings. Let me just give you the whole of chapter seven. The first thing, write it down. The first thing is we're gonna see evil's reiteration. That's what we're gonna look at this morning. Evil's reiteration. And what I mean by that is that we'll see today evil re-manifests itself throughout all of human history. Two, we're gonna see the saints' persecution. Then we're gonna see God's adjudication, meaning God is going to judge and destroy these beasts. We're gonna see the king's coronation. We're gonna see the kingdom's realization, and we're going to see the saints' salvation. That's chapter 7 in a whole, okay? And what I mean by that is we're going to see evil. It's going to pop out its ugly head. We're going to see the evil uh, take out the, or attempt to take out the saints. Then we're going to see God's throne of judgment. We're going to see him destroy the beast. We're going to see him coronate the king. We're going to see him give an eternal kingdom to that king. We're going to see the saints preserved and the saints Saved. We see all those things happen in chapter 7. Okay, one last thing. This should be interpreted through what, uh, we, what theologians call a dual fulfillment, uh, meaning that some of these things we're going to see have already happened, some of them are happening, and some of them will happen. And some of them, both. Okay, that's, that's just, I'm just going to give that to you. If, you. if you're interested in more of this kind of stuff, if this seems boring to you, I'm sorry, if this sounds interesting to you, sign up for the class on Saturdays and you'll learn more about how to interpret this kind of stuff. Let's get into the text. Daniel chapter seven, verse one. Today we're just gonna look at the beasts. All right. Verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now let's just pause right there. This is significant because if you uh, read the book of Daniel, you'll realize that the narrative is given in sequence and then the second half of the book is all visions and dreams and things that happened throughout the course of the narrative. So chapter seven, get this, chapter seven takes place between chapters five and six, okay? Chapter five, uh, did I get that right? Yeah, between five and six. Chapter five was about, um, I feel like I'm getting this wrong. Okay, the, the chapter about Belshazzar, okay, was at the end of Belshazzar's life. Remember the, the, the hand on the wall that wrote, um, you've been weighed in the balance, right? Uh, this happened at the beginning of that king's reign and administration. That's when this vision happened. So this is the, the final king of Babylon. For those of you that are just joining us, by the way, this took place about 600 years before Jesus, and, and the, the, the children of Israel are in exile. They've been pulled out by the, the empire of Babylon. So God gives Daniel this vision during the first year of King Belshazzar. Now, is there significance to that? Is that important? I think so. I think it's important because I think Belshazzar was not particularly kind to God or his people. Uh, Belshazzar, I think he forgot 
who Daniel was. Daniel was in retirement. He clearly didn't have much respect for Yahweh. Uh, we see that in his sort of drunken orgy that he has in the temple when God shows up to let him know that he's, he's finished. So, so I think that a vision of encouragement to remind that, uh, that the people of God that had, God had not forgotten them was actually probably very welcomed in this particular moment. So it's in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now we've seen visions before in this book, but they've been Nebuchadnezzar's visions. Okay, now we're seeing a vision of Daniel. This is Daniel's vision. And you're going to notice that, that Daniel's going to be given a lot more detail than Nebuchadnezzar was given. And the reason, I think, is because the world is given what's called general revelation, but God's people are given what's called special revelation. You're holding it in your hand. God loves to give his kids the truth, and he gives us the spirit to understand the truth. So he gives Daniel a special revelation. And Daniel's a certified prophet, so it's not as though he uh, is getting his, uh, his weird, crazy dreams mixed up with God's revelatory, uh, predictive prophecy. He knows the difference. This isn't just a weird dream that he wrote down. This is reality. God has invited him into a space, uh, a trans-dimensional space, where he's able to see uh, the reality of what's going to happen in the future and the reality of what's happening right now. Verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So Daniel is brought out of his bed up into a place where he can see and behold the ocean or the sea, okay? And the sea is not docile, it's not flat, it is what? It's chaotic, there is a tempestuous wind. The four winds have been released. In other words, the sea is crazy and it's, and it's scary. And out of this sea, he's going to begin to see monsters, beasts emerge out of the sea. Sounds a lot like Revelation 13, if you want to study that later. Very similar. Now, what are we to think of the sea? The sea uh, is often used by the biblical authors and by the ancients to illustrate a place of chaos. It's the world. The sea is the world. All of the, you know, there, there's a reason that well, the Jews, first of all, they didn't really like the water much other than the Sea of Galilee, okay? They weren't sea-bearing people. The, the sea was terrifying, and the sea was commonly referred to as the Gentile world, the, the chaotic, uh, fallen space of this world is, is essentially what the sea represents. That's why when you read the book of Revelation, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no sea. It's not, that doesn't mean there's not gonna be any water, it means that there's not going to be a chaotic Gentile world anymore. It's going to be a peaceful place. God's kingdom, shalom, will be fully realized there. So the four winds of heaven means uh, that, that this great storm is released in the sea of the world, and it's out of this space that these, these, these beasts are going to come, out of the chaos of this world. The point is here, the, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> choked on my own saliva. Okay, sometimes I get too excited. I need to swallow every so often. Okay, okay. Uh, so the, the point here is that these beasts, <laughs> don't take me too seriously, right? I, I'm always a joke. Okay, uh, the, the point is that these beasts are going to come out of the chaos of the Gentile world. Verse three, four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. Now notice they're all a little different, but they all have similarities and they're all connected. Uh, what are we to think of these beasts? Now we don't have to guess, verse 17 is gonna tell us eventually that they're kings. They're kings and rulers. Rulers of Gentile empires, Gentile um, world systems. Now, why are beasts used to illustrate these particular kings? I think, first of all, it was normal for, for nations to have some kind of an animal as sort of like their crest or their, uh, their, their mascot, if you will. That's part of it. But I think the other thing is, is that the biblical authors are trying to show us, God's trying to show Daniel, that, that the nations of the world, the empires of the world, are beastly. They're savage. They're beastly and they're, they're savage. They come out of the chaos of this world. They're wild, undomesticated, chaotic, and hostile. Okay, that's the, the, the picture of these beasts. Each uh, is a predatory animal, as you'll see. These beasts are bent on destruction. These represent godless kings and kingdoms that appear out of the earth. Now, if you guys have been with us in Daniel, you'll remember chapter two, there was this vision of a statue, remember? And there were four parts to the statue. Okay, follow me. This will make things a little easier for you. The four beasts are, are symmetrical with the four parts of the statue. Okay? You understand what I mean by that? 
So the first beast is the head of the statue. The second beast is the shoulder. It's, it's obvious. They're, they're, they're referring to the same things. They're meant to be connected. But what's so interesting is that the statue was sort of an impressive and glorious perspective on world empires. This is a much more honest perspective. They're beasts. They're savage. So let's look at the first one. first one's in verse 4. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the man of a mind was given to it. So this first beast, it appears like the blend of a lion with eagle's wings. What is that supposed to uh, make us think of? Well, I think it's supposed to be terrifying, frankly. Can you imagine? Okay, a lion's scary enough as it is. A lion with some big eagle's wings on it that can fly around and, and attack anyone anytime it wants. It's pretty terrifying, okay? So this, this thing is powerful. Now, it's pretty, uh, it's majority report that, that this is probably referring to Babylon, okay? The head of gold, Babylon. Babylon's crest was the lion. If you Google Babylon, you'll see all kinds of images of lions on their walls and their gates. Not to mention Jeremiah and Ezekiel both referred to Babylon uh, as an eagle and as a lion, so this is probably referring to uh, Babylon, and it's probably referring to the power uh, of Babylon at its height, which sort of set the standard for, for, pure, mon- uh, uh, for pure power in the, the animal kingdom. Okay, uh, the wings are plucked off. What's that about? It's probably, referring, it's probably referring to the great diminishment in the power of Babylon. You know, Cyrus, the Persian, when he conquered Babylon, he didn't have to fire a single arrow. Okay, and there's a whole reason for that. You can study in history. But Babylon's greatness had greatly diminished. And I think that's what the the, the tearing off of the wings is referring to. Now, you'll notice the lion is standing up on on feet like a a, a man, and it's given the mind of a man. Who is that referring to? Well, who was the primary king of Babylon? It was Nebuchadnezzar. You remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Okay, he was made to be like a beast. And then once he recognized God's sovereignty and God's authority, he was given back his mind of a man. I think it's referring to Nebuchadnezzar. And and by the way, the more surrendered you are to God, the closer you are to a true human. And the less surrendered you are to God, the more like a beast that you are. Nebuchadnezzar had a taste of humanity when he surrendered and bowed his knee for a moment to God. The second beast, verse five, behold another beast. Are you guys with me? Are we good? Are you guys tracking? Okay, this is a lot. This is crazy. Okay, Uh, behold, verse five, the second beast. Another beast, a second one, like a bear. And it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth with barbecue sauce between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Now, I asked Mike to to portray this scene for our series uh, months ago, and he did so. And he put the bear there, and I was like, hey, bro, can you do one thing for me? Can you put some blood on the ribs? Okay, Uh, and that's because that's savage. Uh, But the reason is because the idea here is that the bear has literally just popped its head up after devouring much flesh. So this isn't like a cute Winnie the Pooh bear. Okay, this isn't like a, a, a koala bear or a panda bear. Okay, this is a, this is, this is, well, it would have been a Syrian bear, but it's like a grizzly bear, okay? This is, this is a bear that, that, is, that is terrifying, it's powerful, um, and it's just killed something. What has it just killed? Probably Babylon. And it still has fresh blood in its mouth from these ribs uh, of Babylon. I wouldn't read too much into the three ribs. I don't know what those mean. But the Persian Empire uh, is, is essentially what's being depicted here. Uh, beast three. After this, I looked and behold another beast, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. Have you ever seen a leopard? They're pretty scary. They go for the jugular. Imagine one with four wings. Uh, the beast had four heads, and the dominion was given to it. No, again, this is a predatory animal. This is an animal that's bent on, on, on killing uh, this, this particular animal is fast, it's agile, it's quick, and it's got wings and four heads. This is almost certainly referring to Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great conquered the world in just about 10 years. It's incredible. Lightning speed. He, he took over the, the face of the world. And there was, there was no, nobody that could, could, could seem to, to stop him. What's with the four heads? It could be referring to the four generals. If you study history, you'll learn that, that, that Alexander the Great died very young, and when he did, he left his kingdom, Greece, to four generals. And those four generals uh, could be the four heads. We don't know. Here's the fourth beast. Now, this one gets a little different. Up until now, these beasts have all resembled animals. This one's a little different. Verse 7, after this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast 
terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So what do we note about this? First of all, we notice that this beast does not have a simile, meaning this beast is not given an allusion to an animal that it's like. It's sort of a category in and of itself. There isn't a particular animal that Daniel feels like he can illustrate this beast with. All he can say is, is that it's absolutely terrifying. It's exceedingly strong. It's dreadful. It's got these great iron teeth that break into pieces and whatever it breaks into pieces, it then stomps on the ground with its feet. And this is probably most, most likely referring to Rome. Okay, and it coincides with the statue that had uh, feet of iron mixed with clay, remember? Uh, the, the, the Roman Empire really was a destructive force. It's one of the most incredible pieces of human history. The way that the Roman Empire took over the world was incredible. They were literally the war machine, crushing and devouring and destroying every nation. It was incredible. But this beast transcends, I think, just the Roman Empire. I think it's speaking about something much more because, see, we're meant for the camera is meant to start at the terrifying beast and work its way up, and then all of a sudden these horns protrude from the head of this beast that extend, I think, beyond this particular empire. This beast is so captivating to Daniel. He's like, what is this one? I get it. That's a lion. That's a leopard with four heads, but hey, it's a leopard. I get it. You know, uh, that's a bear. Yeah, it's a bear. Okay, what is that thing? And in a minute, Daniel's going to ask the angel, he's like, what in the world is that thing? And what's with the horns? Let me just make a quick point here. Some evil um, goes far beyond the ability to illustrate with natural things. And that's why I think it's so important that God gave us the gift of fantasy. Because fantasy, believe it or not, is oftentimes closer to reality than you think. There are, there, are, there are fanciful, ever since the beginning of history, humans have been thinking up fanciful bad guys, dragons. Why do we do this? I think it's because we know there is evil that is far transcendent to the evil we can see with our eyes. One of my wife's favorite quotes by G.K. Chesterton, I love this. She, he says, fairy tales do not tell children dragons exist. Children already know they exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. I think it's important that we read fiction. It's important that we, that we uh, use our imaginations because the reality is evil, listen to me, evil is far worse than you can possibly imagine. And we tell our children stories about dragons dying so that they know that the dragon will die. But then we tell them who the hero is. We tell them who the one that lops off the head of the snake is. It's the son of man. And that's what we're going to see in this text next week. So Daniel gives this description of this terrifying and terrible beast who does not have a simile. And this beast has ten horns. Now what's with the horns? If You really need to understand this if you're going to read apocalyptic literature. Horns are synonymous usually with some kind of a particular king or, or a particular emperor or someone in power. So this beast has 10 horns, meaning there's some, some kind of 10 kings. Now, it, it could be all kinds of things, and we're not going to get into the weeds of this. These horns could refer to 10 subsequent Caesars within Rome, maybe. These horns could refer to uh, symbolic layers and longevity of the power of Rome. You know, Rome never really died. It kind of fizzled, and rather it just kind of integrated into Western culture. And there's many senses in which Roman culture still lives on. So much of our, 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 our governmental system and our language and so many things trace back to the Greco-Roman world. So there's a sense in which this beast lives on. It could be that the horns are sort of this extension of that into this world. We'll see. They could point into some kind of reiteration or reincarnation of the Roman Empire. Out of those ten horns comes a little horn. And that little horn takes out three of the other horns or three of the other horns are replaced by it. And this little horn, as we'll see, um, has a big mouth, okay? Uh, so so let, let, let's look at it. Here, here's what I want you to get before. before. Before we move on to the little horn, and I tell you who the Antichrist is. No, uh, <laughs> before, before we get to that, I want to tell you, you guys play Mario in here? Mike, I know you play Mario. Yeah, okay. Mario, Trevor, okay. So, so when you play Mario, there's a beast at the end of every level, right? And what happens with each level? The beasts get harder and harder and harder. And at the end, you fight Bowser, right? Okay, 
The fourth beast is Bowser, okay? That's what I'm trying to say. This is the, these beasts get more and more savage. They get more and more crazy. This last beast, whatever it is, whoever it is, it represents the full and final culmination of human evil. And the little horn is evil personified. Here we go. Verse eight. I considered the horns. Now, Daniel, he's, he's immediately con, very much, con, uh, he's very much enraptured by this fourth beast and the horns on its head. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, this horn, uh, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Anybody still think the Bible's boring? It's probably the creepiest part of the Bible you've ever read. This little horn pops out and it's got eyes. You know, it's like a horror movie. Good grief. Uh, it's supposed to freak you out. This is a freaky thing. This beast is crazy. It's gnarly. It's got metal teeth. It's destroying everything in its wake. The other beasts died from this beast and was overtaken. And out of this beast comes this little horn. And this little horn has characteristics of a human. It says that he has eyes like a man. And I think that's probably referring to wisdom, worldly wisdom, and insight. Okay, so if there is this antichrist type person that comes up, he's going to have great wisdom and insight. He's going to have a mouth that speaks, meaning he's going to have great influence and a great platform. I'm going to try to avoid making too many of these connections, but you think about social media and you think about the internet and you think about the ability for someone that has no military power to have so much influence. There are people on social media platforms that have more influence than our politicians do. I mean, we live in a day where, where you can get a message out, right? And so whoever this little horn is, he's going to sort of command the final beast. He's going to emerge out of the final beast. He's going to have a big mouth, meaning he's going to have a big platform. He's going to say big and lofty things, and he's going to speak curses against God. And this gets developed more in the chapter. It gets developed more in the book of Revelation. Now, if you're wondering where Christians get this crazy idea that at the end there's going to be some kind of a recapitulation of the Roman Empire, one world system, and out of that system is going to come some kind of a, a figure that's going to rule that system and, and rage against God in one final battle, it comes from stuff like this, okay, and, and a lot more in, in Revelation. But this is kind of the idea that, that maybe this beast uh, is some kind of a new Rome that's going to come, one world system, and out of it's going to come uh, this, this one Antichrist. Now, the Bible uses the term antichrist. Okay, we don't come up with that term. That's, that's a biblical term. The Bible also says there's something called the spirit of antichrist. The spirit of antichrist is, it transcends all generations. It is the spirit of evil. Remember I said evil is the space, the domain where God is not ruling. So antichrist will ultimately culminate in this final personification, this little horn that's gonna come out. And next week, we're going to see all of that. Spoiler alert, I think the point is we're supposed to contrast this little horn with the Son of Man. And we're supposed to see the superiority of the Son of Man. We'll see that next week. Okay, let's try to land. We'll stop there. We'll stop there, right before the Son of Man. Let me give you four timeless truths. We need to step back and we need to go, what are we supposed to do with these beasts? What are we supposed to think about these beasts? Let me give you four timeless truths contained within this vision of beastly power. If you want to write them down, some things where I think this matters to us. Number one, every beast in this age, this is a truth, every beast in this age is only as evil as God allows it to be. Every beast in this age is only as evil as God allows it to be. Do you guys know what a fail-safe is? It's when a designer builds something into its thing so that if it breaks, it only breaks so much. God's sovereignty is overarching in man's failure and, 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 and even within the domain that's, that's been given over to evil. God is sovereign over these beasts. The text makes this abundantly clear. How, Sam? Well, let me show you. The first beast was made to stand on two feet. And the mind of man was, listen, given to it. These are directives and allowances. Someone is, someone is allowing these things. The second beast was raised on one side. It doesn't say the second beast raised himself on one side. It says the second beast was raised on one side. And it was told, arise and devour much flesh. 
The third beast was given dominion. So what's my point? My point is that from a human vantage point, it sometimes feels like we live in a duality or in a dualistic universe. That's kind of the yin and yang thing. It's that like good and evil are really kind of 50% each and they're stuck in this like deadlock thing and evil and good, are, they're both good and they both, or they're, not, no, they're both good. They're both the same amount of, of, of strong. That's not biblical thinking, okay? God is not in some kind of deadlock with evil because evil is his match, right? It's not like, like evil is as strong as God. Will God win? What do we see here? We see that these beasts, as terrifying as they are, and to Daniel, he feels like an ant under their feet, but we see that these beasts ultimately answer to the sovereign God of the universe, and we'll see that in the, in the next few weeks. Okay, that's very important for us. This would be a great comfort for Daniel to know. We need to remember this as we consider the beasts of our day. You guys, I know you, you get on your, your phones if you're uh, you know, under the age of 50, you get on Fox News if you're over the age of 50, uh, whatever, and you, and, you, and, you, and you listen to the beasts of the world. Iran, Russia, China, beasts, right? And, and not even just the beasts of, 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 of the country, but just the beasts of evil within our society. And it just feels like we're gonna get squashed. We're gonna get crushed. I just want you to remember that, that it's abundantly clear, it's made abundantly clear, I'm not on a limb here, that these beasts were given to do these things. And these beasts only did them as far as God allowed them to do them, and then he stopped them. So God is allowing, in his providence, it's called providence, God is allowing things in this world to happen, but he will have the final word. And every beast in this age is only as evil as God allows it to be. Now, hear me, I didn't say God created it to be, God doesn't make evil, Evil is the absence of God's rule, but he does allow it. Think about that. Number two, the more powerful evil governments become, the more beastly they show themselves to be. Have you noticed that? The more powerful evil governments become, the more beastly they show themselves to be. Now, that's not because of some critical theory thing that it's, it's the institutions themselves that are evil. It's people. People are evil. And the more power someone is given, the more evil someone is gonna do unless they're redeemed and born again. That's just life. What you see in these beasts is you see a digressive sequence of evil. They get worse and worse and worse, more and more and more terrifying. It's important that you understand that because there is a particular, uh, it's really modernity out there saying that, that we're gonna fix this world if we can just get enough technology and globalization and travel and social media and scientific breakthrough that we're gonna somehow fix the world. But what's the reality? What has those things that I just listed, what have they done? In many ways, they've scaled the exportability and, and accessibility of evil. The internet, is it used for good sometimes? Yes. Has it been used to spread the gospel in some way? Yes. But it also has opened Pandora's box to child pornography, to human slavery, to all kinds of evil. So the bigger humanity, the bigger the government, the bigger the system, the bigger the world, the more the technology, the more, the more evil will be allowed to grow. And, and that's something that we wanna see there. And Sam, that's negative, why are you bringing that up? I'm bringing it up because I want your hope to be in the return of Christ, not in the evolution of a human species. Because I want your hope to be in Jesus' return. Now that might be kind of a negative view, but it's only negative until Jesus gets back. I'm gonna make a prediction. It's gonna get worse before it gets better. And it's not gonna get better until Jesus, the Son of Man, arrives on the clouds. And the Ancient of Days gives him all dominion and we get his eternal kingdom. Okay, and the beast is slain. Until that happens, stuff's gonna get worse. Social media is gonna get worse. Because it's opening up all of these lanes now for human evil and sin to be unleashed on the world. I mean, it's, it's gonna get bad. Our hope needs to be in the return of Christ. That's the point for Daniel, and that's the point for us. Number three, the third thing we see in this is all allegiances of evil are interconnected. All allegiances of evil are interconnected. Notice that all the beasts are different, yet they are connected, meaning they live on within or throughout the next one. They're like little nesting dolls. The, these, these beasts 
Uh, really, the, the Babylonian Empire was absorbed by the Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire was absorbed by the Greek Ro Empire, and the Roman Empire really just absorbed the Greek Empire. And the entire Western world, really the entire world just absorbed Rome. It's all sort of contained within it. It's the Star Wars analogy, right? All the beasts are contained within the one. All of it is connected. It's all one evil. And we don't have time to go there, but in Revelation 13, John sees a beast come out of the sea, and what do you know? That beast has all four different parts that we read here. Read it on your own. The point is, is that all evil is connected and intertwined. This matters because we like to relativize and categorize our evil as though there's a gradient scale and it somehow releases us from moral culpability. That's not true. And so my, my primary, my primary um, invitation, I think, for you this morning and that this text gives us is to go, look, there is no gradients when it comes to evil. It's not like, well, uh, this is kind of evil, but it's okay. There's evil and there's God's kingdom. And we need to be real and realistic about the nature of these beasts. We need to be real and realistic about the nature of human evil, the nature of sin. And we need to, to take seriously the lives that we live in. There is no neutrality. There's no ambiguity. If you're in the kingdom, you're in the conflict. We need to see this. There's a sobriety that I think this passage is supposed to bring us to, a sobriety where we go, man, let's stop screwing around. Evil's really bad, God's really good, God really wins. Let's get serious about the things that God's about. Let's zoom into his program. Let's, let's get serious about what God's doing. Number four, all, this is important, all kings and kingdoms in this chapter end except for one. That's the whole point of chapter seven, right? The whole point of chapter seven is all kings and kingdoms end except for one, and that kingdom that does not end is the kingdom of the Son of Man. And consequently, the saints, you and I, we get access to it because of him. Evil will never get away with a single thing. So, this chapter should sober us regarding the seriousness of evil. It should sober us regarding the goodness of God. It should cause us to beware of something Pastor Ryan talked about a few weeks ago, and that is what we're gonna call an escapist eschatology that thinks that we're not gonna have to go through any hard stuff that the beasts aren't gonna tramp, like that, that we're not gonna be under the, the, the trampling feet of the beasts. If you read Daniel chapter seven, the beasts are chewing on the saints, but they're preserved. Okay, we go through hard things. That's the reality. So don't get too excited about the fact that you might not have to go through anything hard. Daniel chapter seven should cause us to wake up. It should be a cold glass of water in our face to wake up and go, we gotta take serious the spiritual warfare that we're in. We've got to stop screwing around and allowing things into our life. If you knew you were going into war, what would you do? You would know the enemy's front. You would know your resources. You would know your fellow soldiers. You would know the objective. And that's what Paul is trying to do in Ephesians when he says to put on the whole armor of God. He says, look, you guys have no clue how serious the spiritual warfare you are in is. Not trying to be dramatic. Principalities, powers, beasts, they want you dead. Put on the armor of God, which is to say, believe the gospel. Take God seriously. Take God at his word. Christians waiting for the return of the son of man will live life under the feet of beasts. But be careful, be intentional, be faithful, and be hopeful because the son of man wins the day. And that's what we're gonna see next week, all right? Let's all stand. I'm just gonna lead us, Ryan, just real quick in a...